Reason Bible study. My name is Russell. Today we're studying lesson number five uh, in our quarterly regarding the sanctuary and the entitlement is atonement. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you today acknowledging you as our creator and our redeemer. And we thank you for the insight that you've given us in this class regarding the sanctuary service. Uh, this is going to be a difficult lesson because uh, it it disagrees with much of what uh, I believe and hopefully much of what the, this class believes. Please give us uh, insight and wisdom as we move through this today and be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you read the lesson this week? Any issues? See, I thought last quarter was difficult because there was, last quarter's lessons were, were generally written, you know, in harmony with what, with what I believe and what the, what the direction this class is going. So it was difficult. One of the things I bank on when I teach is a lesson like this, uh, where there's a lot to disagree with and that'll, that'll give us plenty of opportunity for, uh, filling time and, Making our way through it, and today's no exception. Today, today's a gold mine. We, we can spend all day uh, on this, but we won't. We will spend the next hour or so. Star Wars Sabbath lesson. Um, quote from the lesson. I'm going to be doing lots of quotes from the lesson. Uh, get the notes if you want to see which ones are quoted and which ones are my uh, commentary here. The sacrificial system is probably the best-known part of the sanctuary system because it's the part that points directly to Christ's sacrifice. The blood of the animal that died for the sinner becomes a symbol for the blood of Christ who died for us. Now, how many of you were here last week? Okay. I would encourage you to download Tim's notes from last week. There's a wealth of information on what the symbols uh, or what the articles in the sanctuary symbolize. I had to refer back to that at least a dozen times in preparation for the for today. But what does the blood actually symbolize? Louder. Life. The life of the animal, the life of Christ. And with the sinner cutting the animal's throat, and think, just, just think about that for a while. I've never, never had the pleasure of cutting an animal's throat, but I can't imagine it's uh, endearing. So the sinner cuts the animal's throat. What, what is the foundational message of that to the, to the person who brought the animal and cut the throat? That something they had done caused a disconnect caused death they severed the circulation of the animal and watched as it at, lay there gasping and dying okay ponder that so the lesson would suggest the blood of the animal symbolizes the blood of Christ I'm going to suggest it symbolizes the life and character of Christ okay there's no question that Christ died on the cross and he did shed blood. But God was trying to teach us, teach the Israelites and us something regarding this uh, service. Sunday's lesson, Sin and Misery. 
Uh, I believe it's the first paragraph. This is a quote from the lesson. Anyone who knows the Lord can testify sin separates us from God. Amen. The good news is the Lord has, has put in place a system to heal the breach caused by sin and to bring us back to him. Amen. At the center of this system, of course, is sacrifice. This is the sentence I don't particularly agree with. Um, is, is, was, do you think the death of so many animals was really good news? Nope. Couldn't be. I mean, our, our universe, our earth was designed for immortality. Nothing was designed to die. Yes, Eve. I would actually disagree with the with the sentence before that that you put in place a system to heal the breach. I think you put in place a person to heal the breach. Um, you know, it's it's a way. It's not a system. Okay, well, that's fair. System's a broad term. You could call the whole plan of salvation a system. You know, with the the you know Christ leaving heaven becoming human, eradicating uh, human nature, you know, the, the self-centered portion from human nature and providing us a healing remedy. And that, could, that could fall under the system umbrella. But I think the system that they're talking about here is the sacrificial system. And that the sacrificial system uh, was not that – was, that was a piece of the puzzle. That, that was designed to teach – Something and it was designed to have a finite period, a beginning and an end. It was it was it was a shadow of things to come, like we talked about last week. Um, someone look up Psalms fifty one seven, and someone Isaiah one eleven through eighteen. Third person look up Hosea fourteen two, please. Let's not forget that part of this sacrificial system was not only the killing of the animal by cutting his throat. But it was the removal of the <clears throat> the organs and the fat around the organs and the burning of the fat and the animal on the altar. How many of you have ever smelled burning hair? No. Is that a sweet fragrance? No. Then then how do we how do we understand some of the scriptures that you know when God is talking about the, the sweet smell of sacrifice, the sweet fragrance of sacrifice? What was so sweet about the smell of burning fat and hair? Symbolizing the eradication of sin. Thank you. God understood that there, there were some people that were getting it. Some people, it was, it was working in their minds. Some people were understanding that, hey, this is, that there's a coming Redeemer. There's a coming Savior. This, this is symbolizing this. This, you know, God is love. Some people got that God is love through this whole sacrificial system. Uh, is there a hand? You have your hand up? Do you have one of the texts? Okay, which one? Psalms 51.7. Okay, please. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Okay, Isaiah 1.11-18. That's not the text I had in mind. It's a, it's a nice one, but I don't... <sighs> Sorry, Isaiah 1.11-18. We should be very familiar with this one. This is a multitude... Of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of red cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? 
to trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. meeting. Um, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Hey, this is this is God just breaking the Jews over the coal for doing what he asked them to do. I mean, he instituted this sacrificial system in, in minute detail. He, he gave them their... Their feast days and their festivals and their their Sabbaths. Well, what got missed? The meaning behind the entire system. That's right. Someone else have you had Hosea? Oh Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. The Psalms text and the Hosea text gives us a little bit of an indication of the type of sacrifice that God's really looking for. You know, David asked to be purged with hyssop, to be cleaned, to be cleansed, create in me a new heart, and, and uh, renew a right spirit within me. Search me and seek me and find the evil way in me and heal me. Um, you know, Hosea is is uh, advising the Israelites to to um, you know purge themselves of evil and to you know, give a, a sacrifice of their lips because from the heart, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if our heart is healed, our lips will be healed. Make sense? Uh, the lesson goes on to ask: "Quote Is God justified in forgiving the sinner?" After all, is not the sinner unrighteous and therefore worthy to be condemned? That's what Satan says. Thank you. That's correct. That is a satanic doctrine. First John 1 John 1.9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, that, that part often gets dropped from that text. He's faithful and... And just. This is a definition, a fantastic definition of God's justice. His justice is a healing us. Don't you think that this system where they came and sacrificed became, quote, just a routine for them after a while instead of a sincerity? Sure it did. Of course it did. We're all worshiping other gods. That's what what God was berating uh, uh, Israel through Isaiah about for just going through the motions. We see the same thing today. With this question, is God justified in forgiving the sinner? After all, he's unrighteous and therefore worthy to be condemned. This is the sort of mentality that develops when when you view the 
Old Testament sanctuary system through an imposed law lens instead of looking at the life and the character and the teachings of Jesus and then going back and viewing the sacrificial system through that lens. Um, and the, the lesson chooses to support that argument through some strange example of Joab getting a woman to go and lie to David about her two sons and you know one murdered the other and woe is me and please spare the life of the of the murderer and I absolve you of all the blame and blah 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 made no sense to me I don't know if anyone else uh, it, 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 but I I thought it was a flimsy example at best but it gets better it really gets better uh, moving on down a paragraph. This is also from the lesson. Similarly, God takes over the guilt of sinners in order to declare them righteous. For us to be forgiven, and this is in italics, God himself must bear our punishment. This is the legal reason why Christ had to die if we were to be saved. Wow. Folks, I don't know where to begin with this. Wow. I mean, this, this is this is satanic. I, I'm not... Uh, I'm, we need to stop pulling punches here. This is a satanic doctrine. There's no, no, no question about it. First of all, God heals the sinner in order to declare them righteous. Okay? Otherwise, God's lying or they're not healed or they're not righteous. So God, has, God heals the sinner. He justly heals the sinner. We just found out from 1 John 1, nine. So... That's what. That's what, how God declares them righteous, because they are. He makes an accurate diagnosis of their condition and their character. Secondly, God is forgiveness. He's not forgiving. He doesn't choose to forgive. He is forgiveness, just like he is love. He's not loving. He doesn't choose to love. He embodies love. He is love itself. He is also forgiveness. He is also justice. And the three are, the three are identical. Since God is forgiveness, we default as forgiving, as forgiven. God, God forgives us, period. We're born forgiven. We're born terminal. We're born infected with a condition that will, that will, that will kill us in the end if we don't uh, accept that forgiveness and if we don't uh, internalize that forgiveness and if we don't repent and change the direction that we're on. But God's forgiveness. And forgiveness... Forgiven doesn't mean saved. We've been over this before. We don't default as saved, we default as forgiven. And lastly, God did not have to bear our punishment in order for us to be forgiven. He did have to die in order for our salvation. I don't want to make any mistakes about that. God died that day on Calvary. Um... But it has nothing to do with the legal profession. He died in order to reveal his character, Satan's character, and our characters. And to provide a means for healing us and restoring us back to atonement with himself. Yes? Could we say that he did have to bear or take on our condition? Absolutely. Absolutely. No question. And he had to bear... God's wrath, if you want to, if you want to take it that far, with our understanding of what God's wrath is, of, of a letting go, of restraining himself. And I mean, think about that, parents. If someone was nailing your kid to the cross, 
Could you restrain yourself? No. no. I wouldn't even try. Exactly. So then couldn't you go as far as to say he was our substitute? He was certainly a substitute. I don't think it's a substitute in the way that Miss Lesson would have us believe, or most of Christianity would have us believe. So how would he certainly he certainly came as an example for us to uh, and a substitute. He came and, and revealed to us what what happens when God lets go, right. and and unremedied unremedied sin takes over. When God lets go, you die. Yeah. That that's you know in order to keep us from experiencing that. He came and said, look, watch, universe, this is what happens. So, yeah, I, I don't have any problem with the word substitute. I just have a problem with the word, uh, the way it's used in most of uh, Christianity. How you define it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to me, a substitute is kind of two equal parties, and so one can step in and substitute for the others. He did something that we could never have done for ourselves. Yeah. So in that way, he was not my substitute because I couldn't have achieved it. You know what I'm saying? So perhaps, perhaps he was a substitute for God Himself. Perhaps you know. Have you ever thought that Christ and God argued back and forth in heaven about who was going to come and do this? God said, "Yeah, I can't let you do that. Let me go." And Christ said, "No, the controversy is with me. I must do it." In the back, Peggy. Uh, one of our online people. Our substitute in that no human could accomplish the plan of providing the remedy. Correct. Uh, and that's, that's just what Lori said. Yes. Well, I was going to beg to differ in a, in a kind way that I don't see it as equal. I see it as a substitute can be better, you know. I mean, it, it's at least equal or better. So okay. Yeah, that, that's better. That's fine. Semantic. My thought process as far as the substitute is that Christ substituted himself for God, the Father. And he, and he came and, and revealed, you know, revealed what happens. You, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely correct that an angel, angel couldn't, an angel's uh, revelation wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have absolved the, the controversy. And, and human, human beings had already failed. Yes. The way I understand it is, is that if, uh, Death was going to happen. That you know, when 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 sin uh, raised its ugly head, death was going to happen, and somebody was going to be it. So it was going to happen to us, or it was going to happen to God. So in in a sense, um, Christ coming into this and demonstrating that second death experience, that was the substitute for us, for Adam and, and for mankind. Ultimately, really, to be honest with you, even for Satan himself, because the uh, wages of sin is death. They didn't have that reference point in heaven on what death meant. So to describe what that meant, he had to show them what that second death was. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I have a little bit of an issue with the second death references because Scripture is quite clear the second death is the lake of fire, the lake of which I what I believe to be God's presence. That this this says in Revelation, this is the second death. Human beings that experience that are going to be. The human beings that experience the letting go of God are going to be completely have the complete opposite man- mentality of Christ. What Christ experienced when he um, was you know, when, when God restrained Himself, God, you know, Christ was, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was yearning to see the Father's face. He was he was selfless, and when he was hanging there on the cross, he he did not he had no thought to use his power to save himself. 
um, the the rest of humanity who experience God's letting go uh, are going to have a very different mindset. They're going to be begging for the rocks and trees to fall on them and hide hide their faces from the one who sits on the throne. They're going to have a, a very different concept of who the God you know, who God is. They're going to have they're going to have a me first mentality. They're going to be they're going to be yearning to save themselves. So I, I think if you if you want to if you want to compare second death experiences of God letting go, then yeah, Christ experienced God letting go, but the second death experience uh, is very different from you know with with humanity and what God endured and what Christ endured. No man has has. Um Receive the second death, only Christ himself. When, he, when Christ went into the, the grave, um, there was no surety in his mind at that time when he, when he separated from God that, that he was coming out. That was that experience, that demonstration to the, to the universe that this was the full sacrifice. It, basically what it was. Yeah, again, I'm not sure I agree with the, the surety either. I mean, he, he, predicted, he predicted his resurrection many times to the disciples. You know, I... I will die and be raised up again in three days. You know, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. So, you know, there's a passage in Ellen White where she says that he was unable to see beyond the portals of the, the portal of the tomb. That doesn't mean he didn't have hope. I think, yeah, I, I think in his human in his human mind, he, he was he may have been unable to envision the future, just like we're unable to envision the future. But of course, he would never have come to, to the earth if he didn't. Was there another? Go ahead, Eve. The second death, it, there's actually no return from that. Um, right. And Christ came back. Right. So, I mean, if we're if we're going to compare the two, yes, he he endured the letting go. Um, he did what we could not, but he came back. That was not the second death. Correct. Um, and and I think we we tend to get a little bit confused uh, between the two. All right. Thank you. Well said. Well, I think you have to look at Jesus' death as the cure. The cure, yes. Because he achieved what we can't achieve. He conquered death. Right. He passed through death into life. And um, that was because of his sinless nature that we don't have. And so when we are connected with him, we pass from death to life through him. And it was during in the tomb when his father called him forth. What's that? It was when he was in the tomb when his father, and that's when I think victory was achieved at that point in the team. Death couldn't hold him. That's right. That's because his life was in harmony with the ways and methods and principles of God's government. And so then he didn't experience second death because death couldn't hold him. And and he was arisen and saved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Thank you. I agree. I I don't want to spend a a great deal of time on second death because we've got a lot of other uh, stuff to look at. This is a familiar quote. You know, we're getting back to... um, the lesson state this is the legal reason why christ had to die if we were to be saved this is a quote a familiar quote from uh thoughts of the mount of blessing page 114 but forgiveness has a broader meaning than any than many suppose when god gives the promise that he quote will abundantly pardon he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all we could comprehend my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are my ways your ways saith the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is referencing Isaiah 55, 7-9. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act. Not merely a legal act. 
by which he sets us free from condemnation is not only forgiveness for sin, but it's a reclaiming from sin. And understand the difference. It's very important. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had a true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart of God and renew in me a right spirit. Again, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Referencing Psalms 103.12. I don't think that, I don't think scripture or what our church believes to be inspired writing can be any more clear. There's, there's, no, there's no legal pardon in this process. It's a, a reclaiming from sin. It's a healing. It's a, it's a transformation of our hearts and minds and characters into harmony with the laws that God ordained this universe to operate in. Okay, Monday's lesson is a, is a doozy. In fact, I, I copied and printed the entire, the entire thing. <laughs> so this should this may take us the rest of the half hour. Um, I put my commentary in italics for those of you who get the notes. Quote, the goal of the offering was to remove sin and guilt from the sinner. Was that the goal of the sin offering? No. (laughs) The goal of the offering was to show the individual the sin separates us from God, cutting the circulation of of blood or or the circle of life. That's my commentary. To transfer the responsibility to the sanctuary. You know, let, me, let me read it without my commentary and we'll go back. The goal of the offering was to remove sin and guilt from the sinner, to transfer the responsibility to the sanctuary, and to let the sinner leave forgiven and cleansed. In extremely rare cases, one could bring a certain amount of fine flour or purification offering, although this purification offering was bloodless. It was understood that without the blooding, there is no forgiveness. Um, hmm. It sounds like a, a lot like going to confession and lighting a candle and walking away thinking... Doesn't it? Sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> and walking away still sick and terminal. Right. Okay. So, we've already discussed that the goal of the offering was not to remove sin and guilt from the sinner. Uh, to transfer responsibility to the sanctuary. No. It was to show that deviations from God's natural law lead to death. And it was not to leave the sinner, and it's not for the sinner to leave forgiven and cleansed. Sinners are already forgiven, but they're not healed. Second paragraph. The ritual itself included the laying on of hands, the death of the animal, blood manipulation, the burning of fat, and the eating of the animal's flesh. The sinner who brought the offering was granted forgiveness, but only after the blood ritual. From the foundation when they were in another country, and they couldn't do this, they were never forgiven. That's correct. And since we aren't doing it now, we can't. We're not forgiven. Well, no, because Christ came and and paid our price, so we are forgiven. But everyone who wasn't an Israelite was in trouble. That's right. Your hands on the yeah, I mean this this is a this is a doozy here. The sinner who brought the offering was granted forgiveness. Why? Because God is forgiveness. Thank you. Same same way that the heathen Babylonians that invaded Judah were granted forgiveness because God is forgiveness. 
They weren't healed. Many of them weren't healed. But they were granted forgiveness. But only after the blood ritual. Okay, only, it was only after the blood ritual could the sinner begin to experience God's freely given forgiveness or atonement. Now, you guys, do, do we understand the, the differences here? Crucial part of this process was involved, involved the laying on of hands. This was done so the offering, quote, may be accepted for him to make atonement in his behalf. The offering applied only for the one who put his hands on the animal's head. According to Leviticus 16.21, the laying on of hands would be accompanied by a confession of sin. This would acknowledge the transfer of sin from the sinner to the innocent animal. Uh, I believe it would acknowledge that sin kills and not God. Okay, this. Uh, what do you guys think about this idea of transference of sin? Focus, focus. <laughs> if I have cancer and I confess that I have cancer, fine and great. Did you transfer your cancer to me? No. No. You know, if I come to a doctor and confess that I have cancer or get the accurate diagnosis that I have cancer, what do I want and what do I need? I need healing. I don't just need some sort of out there on paper transfer. Correct. I need to be healed. Correct. And this this idea that we can transfer guilt is... Satanic. The slaughter was, of course, basic to any animal offering. After the animal was killed, spilled blood was used to make atonement at the altar. Because the sins had been transferred to the animal by the laying on of hands, we should understand the death of the animal as a substitutionary death. The animal died in place of the sinner. This may explain why the act of killing the animal had to be done by the sinner, by the guilty one, and not by the priest. All right, let's go back. Oh, I see some hands. Yes. I um, notice here, the lesson says that the animal died in place of the sinner, but the previous page tells us that the blood was symbol of Christ. How can that be? Well, I think both statements are a mistake. Uh, if, if you're asking why the lesson is inconsistent with itself... Yeah. <laughs> Because it is. I mean, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Okay. I, I got nothing. I, you know, there's, there's lots of issues in this lesson. Yes? Wasn't in the New Testament the laying on of hands, didn't it heal? It could have. You know, some of the apostles laid their hands on, on those. Uh, you know, Christ touched some of the people that he healed. You know, some of them he just spoke to. Um, some of them he just thought it. You know, there was the, the, the ruler that came to Christ and said, you know, my daughter's sick. Just just say the word. You know, I tell people, I tell, I command legions to go here and there, and they do my bidding. Just just say the word. So. I thought the laying of hands on the animal, though, when you confessed your sins, was more symbolic. Was it? Yes, the whole system is symbolic. The, the, the cutting of throat is symbolic. The, I think it literally transferred my sins to the... Lamb, I thought it was symbolic. Yeah, because you know, children sin, women sin, but it always talks about the males doing the sacrifice. So I'm not sure how that works. I'm not either. Um, I can make some educated guesses, but I, I'm not certain. I mean, that 
it was a very patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. Women were viewed as, as little more than property. So, so God met them where God met them where they were. They they were their minds were so darkened by three four hundred years in uh, in slavery, um, and you know he's he's taking them out of slavery and he's instituting this this drama to try to to try to educate them. Uh, he's he's meeting them where they meeting them where they are. So if we're saying it's not transferring, what are we saying it is? Okay, we, we let's make. What's the point of laying? What's the point of laying on of the hands? Uh, no, the transferring of the, you know, the gut. I mean the, the hands to the to the lamb. You know, what are we saying there? What's the symbol here? Thoughts. Acknowledgement. Understanding. I have this disease. I'll die if I don't have something done about that. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It's it's an acknowledgement of, of the condition, mm-hmm. uh, the condition of the heart. Yeah, the condition of the heart that caused that caused this animal to to die. Mm-hmm. Carla, a thought that I just had was it could be that um, the sinner realizes that they are really ill, that they're really sick, and they're transferring their dependence from. There's nothing I can do to fix this. To I need help, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like a transfer of your dependence on on something outside of yourself, so that you can become well. Yes. And it's also a connection with the one who can give life. Okay. The lamb. Yeah, the lamb symbolized Christ. So the the physical connection. Uh, that's a good point as well. Jesus told a story about the Pharisee and the tax collector um, who came in and prayed. And one of them said, you know, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. And I do all of these good things. Um, and then the other guy said, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one who left justified. Because he's the one who recognized his need. Um, the other guy didn't. Right. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, the Pharisee's the guy bringing the sacrifice, and it's just a meaningless ritual. But the other one says, here's my need. Mm-hmm. I have this need. He confesses the need, and that's when God can act. Yeah. I want to go back to the here. We should understand that the death of the animal is a substitutionary death. I think that's only if we believe in a satanic version of God. Uh, the lesson is that sin pays its own wage, not that God would substitute his only son in order to appease his righteous indignation. Yes, exactly. And in the pink section, down or green section, down below, next time you are tempted to sin, envision Jesus dying on the cross and see yourself putting your hands on his head and confessing your sins over him. How might this concept, played out in your mind, help you understand what it costs in order to be forgiven? Seriously? I mean, this. We need to pray for our church, folks. This, this is. Amen. This is rough. Lisa. Could we envision ourselves nailing Jesus to the cross instead? Are we the ones that are guilty of causing his death by our by our sinful life, rather than putting our sins on his head? Are we responsible just as the soldiers were on on the ground there nailing him to the cross? Are we as if we had been there, would we have done that? I don't know. 
I don't I don't know if I would have been screaming crucify him or if I would have been in horror. I don't know. Humanity in general. Like, uh, who, who killed Jesus? God didn't. What I'm saying is that God wasn't responsible for Jesus' death, but sinful man was. Whoever. Sinful men? Yeah, I don't know that I agree with the idea that all my sins, past, present, and future, uh, were laid on him. That doctrine, that theology doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. Right. Um, you know, we've been over this before. You know, if, if that were true, then... And then the Nazis and Stalin and, and all the despots in the world have done Christ a favor by, by killing people before they could commit more sins. You know, abortion providers are doing him a favor by terminating uh, pregnancies, so these these people can the, these babies can't grow up and lead sinful lives. So I mean that 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 doctrine is just just real simple logic would would, would uh, refute the idea that. Uh, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were laid on Christ at the cross. What was <clears throat> what was eradicated was the desire, the nature, the sinful nature, the human nature to self save self. That's what was overcome and and uh, healed at the cross. I, I can tell you that my daughter, as a teenager, uh, was. So anxiety ridden because she kept hearing this guilt trip of yeah. every time I sin, I'm crucifying Christ again. Sure. She couldn't take that burden, so she ran. And, you know. Good for her. You know. So I don't think that's the approach we want to use right. with each other or with our young people to try to guilt them into you're doing this to Christ. And I, I hear what you're saying, too, Lisa. Um, you know, as sinful humanity, it, it may be good to look at that, but I, I just don't think that's a good approach, at least with our young people. Uh, I don't think it's a good approach <laughs> with, any, with any age. The soldier's heart, not the, not the accumulation of sin that caused him to be willing to crucify Jesus. Just because he was not a follower of Jesus, the followers of Jesus certainly wouldn't have nailed him to the cross. Someone who was possessed by the devil and in control by controlled by the devil would be willing to do. That. How, how many of the soldiers who nailed him to the cross will be saved? <clears throat> Some of them, maybe. We don't know. No. The answer is we don't know. Right. I mean, he forgave them. We can, that's, that's correct. Of, of, and of crucifixion. And the one who exclaimed, "Surely this is the Son of God, or a Son of God." Exactly. Uh, the light may have gone on, and he may have he may have uh, he may have been a very staunch disciple. After he may have sought out uh, the apostles and, and been converted. Scripture is silent on that. Right. Was there a hand over here? Yeah, Lori. I think in my correlation, it goes back to the the physical connection, putting the hands on the lamb. Many times, this this lamb was a pet, mm-hmm. you know, or a, a very dear animal in the family, and it was heartbreaking the whole process. And that, rather than envisioning nailing him to the cross, if I'm on the path to healing, when I sin or even think about sin, it's heartbreaking. I'm grieved, you know what I mean? And I, and I want that to change. I don't really want that to happen. So to me, that's the correlation. Of- that is a great point. Thank you. Uh, Tuesday's lesson, the transfer of sin. We're still on this subject. The text is Jeremiah seventeen one. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. 
Now, this is from, uh, from Tim's notes last week. The blood represents the perfect character of Christ and the truth about God. The blood was poured out at the base of the altar and applied to the horns of the altar. Each of the altars, for those of you who are not here last week, the, uh, the altar in the outer court had long, sharp horns. And that was symbolized, that is symbolizing the unconverted heart. The altar in the holy place also had a set of horns, but they were shorter and blunted. This symbolizes a converted heart. The altar symbolizes a converted heart. Uh, and we'll get in a minute to what the horns represent. Um, let's see. The blood was poured at the base of the altar and applied to the horns. This represents a complete cleansing of the heart and a renewal in the truth about God as the foundation of salvation or healing. Then the character transformation as the blood is applied to the horns. Our thoughts being brought into harmony with his thoughts, etc. And he gives a couple of texts, uh, several texts uh, in support of this. The horns represent the power of sin in our lives, the defects of character that are in need of removal and transformation by the work of God through Christ in our lives. So let's think about this. The unconverted heart, the, um, the sinful nature is fairly strong. It's fairly powerful, hence the longer, sharper horns. The converted heart, that, uh, that nature is being subdued, but it's not completely subdued yet, or it wasn't at that time. Hence the symbolism of the, the shorter, blunted horns, meaning that even in the converted heart, there's still some work to be done. Its mistakes will still get made, and there's still need of a Savior. You guys following along? Okay, so let's go back to the text. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, the point of a diamond is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Does this make more this text make more sense now? In other words, we're in need of a savior until we die. Correct. So with it in mind, with it in mind, the two different altars, two different sizes of horns, one representing a converted heart, one an unconverted heart. How do we understand um the lesson's assertion that blood transfers sin to the sanctuary. So the lesson, lesson asserts that. The, the blood spread on the altar transferred sin into the sanctuary. Does it make sense? Of course it doesn't make sense. Life is in the blood. The life is in the blood, and everything that the blood touched in the sanctuary became what? Defiled? Holy. Holy. So if there's so much blood symbolizing the life and character of Christ being spread around, how does that defile a sanctuary? It doesn't. Again from the lesson. Finally, the burning of the fat on the altar indicated that everything about the purification offering belonged to God. Is that what we learned last week? About the... Burning of the fat. Burning of the fat symbolized the eradication of sin. The burning of the fat, uh, what we learned last week, the burning of the fat symbolizes the healing, the transformation of the sin, our sinful nature, the cleansing from within, from around the heart, from around the organs. It's the, it's the transformation from within that uh, Christ will do, that he will accomplish if we allow him. 
Thanks to the death of Jesus symbolized by those sacrifices, our sin has been taken away from us, placed on him, and transferred to the heavenly sanctuary. This is central to the plan of salvation. This is from the lesson. So, if we... Sin in heaven? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> An obvious question. Yeah, the sanctuary in heaven is defiled. But praise God that Jesus is up there covering everything with his blood. The blood is supposedly what makes it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But well, the blood defiles it. Yeah, well, it, it, gets, it gets really twisted here, doesn't it? And it, it causes Jesus to be the defiler. Yeah. You know, supposedly our sins get transferred to him, and now because he's in heaven, he's tainting heaven. Yes. When, in fact, anything that was defiled or diseased that touched Jesus was cured and healed. Um, and it's, it's ludicrous. It is. It's, yes. I'd like a word of caution. Okay. Sin in heaven? Yes or no? Sin started in heaven. Sin did start in heaven. So where will it end? Uh, it'll end. Revelations to be believed. It'll end. It'll end, it'll end on earth. So we have to be very careful with the statements that we're making. And we don't cut ourselves short. Yes, sin started in heaven, and sin will also end and be destroyed and condemned in heaven. Mm, I believe it'll be. It'll end on earth. Sin will. Sin will be destroyed. Sin will be eradicated after the New Jerusalem comes back down to earth, and the the, the wicked are resurrected and try to march on the city. About sin itself, or the sin problem, the sin as a concept, the way Satan started the whole sin concept in heaven with his conduct and his claims. I'm not. I'm not sure the two are any different. To identify a little bit our terms. In order to keep the record straight. <laughs> Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, what was the sin will not rise its ugly head again? Beg your pardon? I'm trying to remember the quote. Sin will not rise its ugly head again. I don't know that quote, but better question is why won't sin ever raise its ugly head again? There are two reasons that I can think of. There may be more. Must have praying for God. We don't want to. We will. We will not choose. We will. We will have seen and experienced the results of it, and we will not freely choose to rebellion. We will. We will be able to. We'll be fully able to, just like Lucifer was. We'll be fully able to rebel. We will choose not to. Because we're healed. And secondly, there won't be any. There won't be a master tempter. So we'll, we'll, the tempter will be eliminated, and our characters will be in harmony with life. Just a second, Peggy. Eve? Um, to say that sin originated in heaven is true. What we're saying now is that Jesus is not the one who's taking sin into heaven and defiling it there. Right. That's the difference. Satan started in heaven. Sure. Yes, sin started there. And then he brought it down to us. Woohoo! Yay. Mm-hmm. But, Woe to the earth. Exactly. <laughs> But to say now that Christ himself is defiled and is thus defiling heaven is what we're objecting to. This is what the lesson is stating. This is a quote, quote from the lesson. Let me read it again. Thanks to the death of Jesus, symbolized by those sacrifices, our sin has been taken away from us, placed on him, and transferred to the heavenly sanctuary. This is central to the 
in my opinion, distorted plan of salvation. This is what the lesson is asserting, that, that sin, our sins have been taken away from us, placed on Christ, and transferred to the heavenly sanctuary. Be very careful. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he cannot take it if he doesn't have control over it, metaphorically. Then what does he take I don't, I don't, I don't think it's well, well, I think what John Baptist is telling us that that he doesn't. It's not like a. You can take my wallet. That's the problem. It's an it's an animate object. Okay. No one can. You know, Christ can can when it's said that Christ takes his, our sin, he heals us. It's just like a physician that cures someone of cancer. The, the physician doesn't take the cancer and put it in a jar on his uh, shelf. He cures a patient of cancer. He doesn't. He doesn't take it, but he t- he, he eradicates it from the uh, from the cancer patient. Just like Christ eradicates sin from us. It's not a matter of him taking possession of it. I want to get to Peggy. Peggy had a comment from the one of the online listeners. Well, one of our viewers uh, gave a very pertinent comment a few yeah well, we've been a while i apologize uh, hebrews two fourteen. since the children have flesh and blood he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil I right this is a good one for all this too i absolutely he took on our humanity our defective humanity and he, he cleansed and cured it lisa you had your hand up say okay he carried our humanity of sin on the cross and he died with that condition but he arose again changed into newness of life and when jesus comes we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and we won't take that sin condition with us to heaven any more than jesus did correct thank you logistically how can he be defiling and cleansing it at the same time yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots and lots of contradictions, and you know it doesn't take you know, much more than uh, you know a fifth grade fifth grade argument to defeat this. Yeah. And yet, it's entrenched. It's so deeply entrenched in our church, mm-hmm. in Seventh Day Adventism, and in Christianity in general that it's accepted as as law. Mm-hmm. It's it's accepted as as gospel. Um, just out of curiosity this week, I actually looked up some texts in the New Testament where it refers to the blood of the Lamb. Um, there's uh, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, justified by his blood, um, redemption through his blood, brought near through his blood, made peace, um, you know, cleansed. Um, these are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, not once does it say... Oh, the blood tainted you. You've been defiled by the blood of the Lamb, yeah. yeah, you, the, yeah exactly. I mean, Scripture is very clear on this. All right. Yes? One fact is that we need to keep in focus, I think, that sin is taken away from our minds. And that's where the rubber meets the road. We Correct. We get sin out of our lives and out of our minds. If we keep focusing on that, then I think it will come together. All those metaphors and all those statements and so forth need to focus on the idea we need new minds. Oh, I, 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 God needs to be restored in our minds. We need to need... I, I couldn't agree more, and I hope that um, no one is taking anything other than that away from this. Yes. 
Sin cannot exist apart from the lives you hold on to it. One more time. Sin no longer exists once it is let go of. Um, I might have to uh, I might have to ponder that one a minute. Sin is a mind. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That sin the sin mind. originated in the hearts and minds of Lucifer. That's what has to be cleansed. Right. The hearts and minds. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I have no, no issue with that. And, you know, it has been asked, what is sin made of? I mean, you can set fire to this uh, podium. It'll burn to ash. Can you set fire to ideas and abstract thoughts and, and um, uh, concepts? Ellen White says there's no explanation for sin. Hmm. There's no there's no rational explanation. There's no rationale, no explanation. Yeah, that's I think that's correct. There's no just there's certainly no justification for it. Because there is no flaw in God. There's no reason for us to think evil of him. Right. Right. That, that's correct. There, there's, you know, his his law of love is perfect, reviving the soul. Yes. And Russell, I'd just like to make plain, especially those that are watching this later, we're not just disagreeing just for the sake of disagreeing. Or right. We're right. Uh, the the basic concept of this is saying something about God that isn't true. And if we understand it incorrectly, we may be following the wrong God, one that is vindictive and vengeful and angry. Right. So we're trying to understand this based on truth about God, not just in order to push ourselves away from our church, because we don't want to do that. Right. We would like to see our church. Yeah, and, and, and uh, thank you for bringing that up. Above and beyond that... Um, I can't speak for any of you, but but I was raised with the, with this sort of belief system through through you know no fault of of parents or school systems or whatever, but that that's that's what was presented. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, and and to undo that was a difficult process. It was it required it's cognitive. Yeah, it, it it remains a difficult process. There's there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on on with having to unlearn something that you assumed was right. I need to. I want to get to Friday's lesson. I know we got some hands. There's a couple of points I want to make for Friday's lesson before we uh, have to close up here. Some have argued that the whole concept of substitution is unfair. Why should the innocent die in place of the guilty? This is again from the lesson. However, because this is a truth that is not only clearly taught in the Bible but is central to the core theme of the Bible, how do we answer that charge? Might the unfairness of all of it all, help us to understand the grace that was displayed in order to bring us forgiveness. That is, in what ways might this, quote, unfairness help us to show how great and merciful and loving our God really is? What, sh- what shows how great, and this is my commentary, what shows how great and... No, no, no. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. What shows how... What shows how great and merciful our loving God really is? That he would demand his innocent son to die to appease his wrath and maintain justice, or that God himself came and died to win us back to trust and restore the broken circle of love and trust. Which shows how merciful and gracious and kind God is. Seriously. One last one last hand and we're gonna wrap it up. I remember in the Tribune Council in heaven before everything happened, before sin and man was created. 
a plan was set in place before where Christ himself volunteered in the case of sin. And then created us anyway. Our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray for the well being of our church. And we ask that you use us as individuals and our class as instruments to help eradicate this, uh, this false doctrine that, that, that plagues our church the, the, the appeasement doctrine, the penal substitution doctrine, and everything that goes along with it. Please, please help us to show in our lives and in our characters and our hearts that God is love. In Jesus' name, amen.